0: It's just almost worse that uh, drugs and alcohol weren't involved, isn't it? I mean, just a little bit. And you know, we live in a world where we're carrying around these GPS devices in our pocket. We have instant access to direction all the time. Uh, maybe we're not as, uh, as qualified as we used to be in reading maps. If you get in, climb into my uh, parents' uh, SUV, which they've yet to drive into a swamp, Uh, you'll still find these road atlases and maps, you know, kind of crammed in the doors from all the different states they've been and whatnot. And I remember as a kid going on vacation and unfolding the maps and trying to figure out where you were and... uh, Educators tell us that those map reading skills are deteriorating in our world today. I have a little quiz for you, okay? This isn't difficult. I think we'll all be able to get these, but a couple questions, uh, skills that are important in reading maps, all right? Here's the first one. Here's the picture of two different, uh, two maps. The question is, are these maps the same or are they different maps, Those are the same maps, right, they're just rotated and that's a skill of rotating objects in our mind that scientists say are really important, is a really important skill in being able to read maps. Here's the next question, you have a map view and a road view of the same spot and you have to determine which one of those arrows gives you the answer to where you are in the photograph. The yeah the the uh, the they say the answer is that first arrow which is sort of you, you can see that it's not you're not coming from the road on top the furthest north on the map you're coming from the road on the south and so that's the spot you are in the picture again a, a, I may be asked the question poorly but uh, a, a, an important skill in determining where you are and if you're heading the right direction being able to sort of go from that aerial view that a map shows you to the view right in front of you, the situation that you're actually in. And, and you know in life sometimes we need direction, sometimes we need maps, and we, we encounter situations where we, we just need a little help, but uh, even reading the map. Uh, last week we talked about how we can rely on God's Word to discover direction and to know where to head, and He offers us that direction. And in a way we could think of God's Word, Scripture, as a map for life. He gives us direction. Well sometimes we even need help in deciding Suffering, understanding, uh, figuring out that map. And, and uh, God is there for us uh, to help us figure out that map. We can absolutely find direction in life when we go to God in prayer. When we talk to Him, He can help us to understand the map, help us to find direction. And I think this story in Daniel chapter 2, as we continue in our series, Throne, exploring the first seven chapters of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, I think it teaches us three steps that will help us to uh, find direction as we go to God in prayer. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. It's a really interesting story in Daniel chapter 2. Last week you remember that we found Daniel and his friends. They were carried off from Judah, uh, where they had grown up, their home, the only place they had known, into captivity in Babylon, and uh, that's where we find them today. They've been gone through all of that Babylonian training, kind of inundated with their history and their culture and their science and and, and everything that uh, the leadership in Babylon could throw at them and, and, and through all of that Daniel and his friends decided ahead of time that uh, that's okay knowledge is good and learning is good but we're going to stand the most important thing in our lives will be to, to live for our God and to to show off how big our God is and, and so Daniel and his friends stood up I guess if you want to use that language to the king and didn't eat for, uh, of the food that the king offered and We learned last week how God saw them through that and and honored their decision and and how the king showed favor to Daniel even through that situation. This week Daniel and his friends are still in captivity and the king is troubled. He has this dream that worries him and he doesn't know what to do and so he seeks some answers from the wise men in the kingdom. Evidently everyone he, he calls All of his wise men together, all of these uh, smart folks in his kingdom, he excludes for whatever reason at this point, it seems, to Daniel and his friends. And so uh, he says to the wise men, I I want you to tell me, interpret my dream. And they said, okay, great king, what did you dream? What was your dream? And he said, no, you don't understand. I want you to tell me what my dream was and then interpret it. And they rightfully say to the king, well, that's not really fair. I mean, no king ever has asked this of anyone to not only interpret the dream, but to determine, to come up with, to know what you dreamed without you relaying any information to us. It's an unreasonable request. The king becomes so angry that he says, if you can't do this, I'm going to execute you all. In fact, he sends guards away to round up all the wise men who aren't in the court to execute them. This was where Daniel and his friends come into the picture. They receive word from the the king's officials that you've got to come because we're going to execute you. The king issued this decree, and and so he's going to execute all the wise men in the kingdom. And, And Daniel said, let me... Talk to the king. He goes to talk to the king and says, I think maybe we can help. Give me a little bit of time. He goes away and he, he gets with his friends and he says, Guys, we have to pray. We have to ask God to give us an answer to these questions. Uh, they go to sleep that night and God gives Daniel the answer to those questions. He he tells Daniel what the dream is and Daniel's able to interpret that dream through the vision that God gives him. He goes back to the king and explains the dream, and the king again shows favor. To Daniel and in this story in Daniel chapter 2 I, I think we learned three steps to uh, finding direction in our life through prayer. Step number one is to talk to God when life is at its most difficult. Look at look at where we begin in chapter 2 in verse 1 it says in the second year of his reign Nebuchadnezzar had dreams his mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Now, one of the things we're going to learn as we even walk through chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, and as we go a little further in our our seven-chapter study of the book of Daniel, is that Nebuchadnezzar isn't necessarily what we'd call a fair leader. He is a guy who leads sort of with an iron fist. He is going to make a request of folks and his employee under his rule in his court that's not a very fair request. It's really unreasonable, and when they can't meet that unreasonable request, he is going to order that they be punished most severely. He's not a guy that we would want to have as our boss. He's not a guy that necessarily we would want to be our leader. He, he seems to be unfair. He seems to be rash. He seems to be unreasonable. I, I think, though, as we read this first verse and as we kind of take into account even of who Nebuchadnezzar is, we have, to, we have to just think about for a minute that Nebuchadnezzar is troubled. And why is that? Well, he has this dream that he doesn't understand, and that troubles him. But it troubles him because he's in this position of leadership. And leadership is just hard. It's just difficult. If you've ever led anything, if you lead your family and friends to go out to lunch after church this morning, you'll understand that leadership is difficult. That there are just times when it's hard to to make everyone on the team feel uh, like they're they're equal, like they're being given a fair shot. It's hard to, to uh, be able to provide for all the needs. And, and leadership is hard. Every election, we see some pictures of, of presidents when they come into office and presidents when they exit office. I have a few of those. The first one is a way back to Abraham Lincoln. Here's a picture of Lincoln on your left when he enters office and on the right when he leaves office. We'll jump ahead just a few years to Bill Clinton. On your left when he enters office, and on the right when he leaves, the next one's of George W. Bush. Same thing. And then Barack Obama. Same sort of deal. On the left when he enters office, and on the right when he leaves office. Now, some of this is that these are, these are folks who enter office and serve for eight years. At Look, as a guy who's in his early 40s, and the older you get, the longer you cling to that before you get to the mid of that, de- you know, the early 40s. And so you just these are folks that come into office, tend to be, at a time in life when age shows up, right? That's just some of it. But some of that is reflected in how difficult, it reflects how difficult leadership really is. Uh, the business journal that I read this week had uh, an article about this, and they said, Uh, Other studies, including a comprehensive analysis of elections dating back to the 1700s, have found that heading a nation can take years off a leader's life. The December analysis from the Harvard Medical School found that elected heads of government, on average, have their their lives almost three years shorter than the candidates they defeat. So leadership is just, it's hard, it's difficult. There's a, there's a weight that comes with this position of authority. And before we speed past the first verse in chapter 2, and we're going to find out that Nebuchadnezzar isn't fair, he's not right, he's not just. He's got a lot of issues, but we can also empathize just a little bit with him, I think, that leadership is difficult. It's just a hard place to be. Chapter 2 goes on to say in verse 2, So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. And so the king brings in all his wise men. He says, this is what I want to know. They say, okay, just tell us the dream. And then we're going to get the king's response in in verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces. And your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. All right, and so uh, the king is troubled. He has this position of authority that's weighing on him. He has this dream. He's not sure what it means, and so he does the right thing. He seeks counsel. He wants to uh, gather around him the wisest, the smartest, the most intelligent folks he can think of, and he, he does that, and he seeks counsel. The one criticism I suppose we can make of King Nebuchadnezzar to this point is that he sort of seeks counsel from perhaps the wrong spot. It's a wise choice when we encounter difficult situations in life for us to seek counsel, but it should also we should also be careful from whom we seek that counsel because it really does matter. It's one of the things we learned last week when, when finally the king you know, the, brought in Daniel, and finally he'll bring in Daniel this week to, and, and have access to the one true God. The king makes this request, and and he does everything he can to get the folks that he's gathered to seek counsel from to to come through. He warns them. He threatens them. He tries to uh, tell them they'll be given rewards. He tries to reward them. Nothing uh, works because, uh, you know, his request is just pretty unreasonable. That's what we learn in verse 7, that these These folks just think they can't do it. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans." So the king again lays out his request, no, you have to know the dream, you have to tell me what the dream was, and then you have to interpret it. They say this is totally unreasonable, no king has ever asked somebody, a subject to do that. Uh, Nothing's going to help us here, king, not our history, not our science, not our, our intellect, not even our religion. The gods can't do this. The gods are the only ones that could do this, and they don't live among us. Our religion won't help us even. Verse 12 says this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So the king sort of gets in the spot where he's threatened. If you can't come through, I'm going to execute everybody. It's, it's sort of like when your dad used to be driving on vacation, you know, and, and you were elbowing and pinching and, and, and messing with your brother in the back seat and your dad looks behind and says, if you don't stop, I'm going to turn this car around. And you keep going because you're pretty sure dad's never going to turn the car around. You know, that's sort of the spot that the king finds himself in. Nebuchadnezzar has threatened this. I don't know as if he really wants to execute all all of uh, his best thinkers in the kingdom. I don't know if he really believes that's the best choice. But he's kind of said, I'm going to turn the car around. I'm going to turn the car around. I'm going to turn the car around. Nobody has come up with the answer. And finally, he says, okay, I'm really turning the car around. And he sends folks to go round up the wise men to, uh, to put them to death. In verse 14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. All right, Daniel's and finally brought into the situation, and Arioch, the king's guard, goes and round up all the wise men. He tells Daniel, "You've got to come with me. Everybody's, you know, we're we're cutting you up. We're cutting you to pieces." And Daniel said, "Well, wait a second. Why? What's the deal? What's going on?" It's just interesting that again we find Daniel faced with a situation that, look, he doesn't agree with. Right? I mean, he's going to be executed. He doesn't think this is a good idea. And he has the opportunity to speak with somebody who has some influence in this situation. And again, scripture tells us that Daniel speaks to him with wisdom and with tact. You've heard it from this stage before, and you've heard it in our small groups before. You've heard it taught over and over. If you've been a part of of church, your life, that relationships really matter. And here, when life is at its absolute most difficult, when Daniel finds himself in a situation that, well, very few of us anyway have ever found ourselves in, a literal life and death kind of spot, you know, Daniel still understands and maintains that those relationships are important. That now certainly isn't the time to burn a bridge. That these relationships are going to be valuable. That they're the only thing that matters for the, for the long term. And, and he approaches his leader with wisdom and with tact. So Daniel goes to the king with that same attitude and he asks for time. Verse 17, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. A couple of interesting things here as we learn what Daniel's first response is. You know, Daniel's facing this really difficult, literally a life and death situation and Daniel decides that the first thing I need to do is pray. He stops to pray. The, his first response is prayer. You know, as I read this story, and as I thought about this story the last couple of weeks, I thought, you know, this, this makes too much sense. And as I reflected on my own life, I know that when I've been in difficult situations, you know, we say things like there's no atheists in foxholes, And what do we mean? We mean that when life is at its hardest, when life is weighing down on us, when there's as much pressure as we've ever experienced, when life is at its absolute worst, its most difficult, that everyone will cry out to anyone that might listen for help. And so even folks with with very little spiritual background, with very little faith background, who haven't considered living after uh, the Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer God as worthy before, might in that moment cry out in prayer. Now the amazing thing about our God is that I believe He listens to those prayers. There's an encounter that Jesus has with a man who has a a son who's dying, and he he wants Jesus to heal his son, and and Scripture tells us that this man says to Jesus, help me with my unbelief, and Jesus heals his son. Even in his unbelief, the man cried out, he sought help from God. God. And Jesus came through for him. I, I believe, now scripture also says that the prayer of a righteous man is, is, is effective. You know, that it, it, that relationship matters. But I believe that God listens and he hears those prayers and that we can cry out when life is at its most difficult, no matter where we are on that journey of faith and a relationship with him, that we can follow Daniel's example and the first thing we can stop and we can pray. You know, too many times in my life, it hasn't been the first thing. You know, I've found myself in a difficult situation, and I've asked myself, Lance, what can you do to fix this? What steps do you need to take? Where can you go to get, get help? What, what decisions do you need to change in the future so that you won't find yourself in the same situation? Now, those are all good questions. Those are questions that ought to be asked. But too often, I've sort of sought my own answers, and I've I've sought a way for me to figure it out, to to seek the help of folks around me before I've gone to the, you know, called in the heavy artillery, before I've gone to to speak to the the Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer God, who has given me access. You know, those questions are fine, but let's start at where the real power is. Let's start where the real answers lie. And you know, when we think about uh, the political landscape in our nation today, so many folks are asking, well, "What do I need to do? What steps do I need to take?" And uh, some of us have, have exercised the rights we're given as uh, U.S citizens to write our congressmen, to call our senators, to to protest decisions that we believe are unjust and unfair. And you know what? We should exercise those rights. We should do that stuff. That's good, and that's fine, and that's appropriate. But as followers of Christ, as citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world, we ought not forget to where we where we should start even as we seek to exercise those rights man start with where the real truth is and start where the real power is and don't forget don't leave God out of that equation follow Daniel's example and seek him in prayer first Talk to him about what those next steps ought to be and what the appropriate measures are. Talk to him about how all of those things are going to affect relationships that matter for all of eternity. Talk to God first about it. It's also interesting that in these couple of verses here that Daniel doesn't go into a closet by himself, doesn't seem. You know, Daniel gets his friends involved. Now, you know... I don't think there's a secret formula to prayer. I don't think there's some multiplier we can get to, to where God really is praying. We have this many people praying. That's not how it works, I don't think. I don't believe. But there is something about praying with other people. You know, there's something about including the team, the family, the kingdom that God allows us to be a part of and going to him and praying about the most difficult things, the, the things that fill us with the most joy in life, whatever the case might be. And so Daniel goes to, uh, to his friends and, and, and prays with them and asks them to pray, to, to help. Look, they were in the same spot. It's one of the reasons that small groups are so important to us here at Wallula Christian Church. We t- talk all the time about those are the places where we can pray, play, and study together that 's all part of of living life together and supporting each other, being part of a community in prayer is is important we 'll we'll pray together in this room, but where we can really share the the, the things that trouble us most, where we can really talk about the things that bring us the most joy, the things that have blessed us in the biggest way, the, the things that have just we ought to be praising God about the loudest we can we can pray together in those groups the best and, and so Daniel gets together with his friends and and he prays uh, we We should talk to God when when life is at its most difficult, when we think that life is circling even out of control, stop, go to him first involve others pray in in, in your group and your family and with your friends and talk to god second step is to give God credit for those answered prayer. Look at the prayers. Look at verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and season. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. God really answers prayer. That's what we learn in verse 19, that God answers prayer. Now when we use that phrase, that God answers prayer, mostly we think of a situation like verse 19 in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. We are praying about something that we want desperately to happen in our life, that that somebody would recover from an illness, that, that something we would get the promotion at work. And we think of God answering prayer when we receive the promotion. When Aunt Betsy gets better, we say God really answers prayer. And in this circumstance, in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, God answers prayer, and he gives Daniel the answers. Now, here's the deal. God always answers prayer, but he doesn't always necessarily give us the answer that we want. What do you think might have happened if God said, Daniel, I'm not going to answer this prayer? What would, have Daniel, what would Daniel's response have been? You know, we have to decide will we give God credit for answered prayer even when the answer isn't what we want? Most of you know, I've, I've told the story before that our, uh, Sherry and I, our first daughter, Katrina, was born much too early and died an hour after her birth. It was a difficult pregnancy for Sherry, and through the course of that pregnancy, at a certain point, uh, we were at the doctor, and they said, hey, we're going to have to do this operation. And so we do the operation, and the doctor said, it's great, it worked. And so I went. I remember going to to church the next uh, Sunday morning and standing in front of a, a group of folks not so unlike you and a church not so unlike this and saying, God answers prayer. Surgery worked. It was a blessing. God answers prayer. Uh, pregnancy continues for a little while Katrina is born much too early the surgery fails a second time Katrina is born much too early dies an hour after birth now what's the truth the truth is that God answers prayer that the same God who is on his throne when the answer was one that brought us great joy is still on his throne and he still God creator sustainer redeemer God when the answer to prayer brings us great sorrow God's the same Mark Batterson who's a a preacher and author wrote this in one of his books he said do you trust that God is for you even when he doesn't give you what you asked for do you trust that he has reasons beyond your reason do you trust that his plan is better than yours do you still trust that God is for you? Do you still trust that God is God? Even when the answer isn't one that we can brings us joy. You know, when, when, uh, when Katrina was born and died, when that answer to prayer came about, you know, I thought, well, how do you make sense of this? Hey, do you want to know the great, deep theological truth the only conclusion that I came through to is that I have no idea. I have no idea what God's plan was in, in that. It didn't and does not seem fair. I got no clue. But in the midst of life's most difficult situations, can we trust and honor that God is still God and that his plan despite our limited view is perfect. It's perfect. You know, Daniel, it's interesting that in verses, you know, these next few verses here in chapter 2, verses 19 through uh, the prayer and and verses 20 through uh, 23, uh, that Daniel has yet to go to the king. Daniel's yet to tell the king, hey, this is your dream, and this is what it means. In other words, he believes that God has given him this answer, and he praises God for that answer before the outcome has come about. He's got to go and tell the king, this is your dream, and the king's got to say, you know, Daniel, you're right. What does it mean? That hasn't happened. It's not going to go well for Daniel if he tells him a dream that wasn't his dream. And yet Daniel praises God through that difficult situation. He praises God uh, even even before the outcome has happened. Do you remember the story of Jericho? Joshua is leading God's people into the promised land, and they, they know that they have to conquer the city. Jericho walls are the highest, most uh, strongest walls, and anybody knows a city that's... Uh, best defense ever. And, and, and God says, don't worry, Joshua, I have this plan for you. This is what you're going to do. Joshua says, I'm ready. I'm writing it all down. God said, I want you to march around the city six times with some priests and the army and blow some horns. And then on day seven, I want you to march around some more and blow some horns even more with some priests and the army and just blow your horns. And, and Joshua, I have to imagine, uh, talked to God and said, God, be serious. What are you talking about? God said, No, really, this is what I want you to do. And so Joshua does it. And on that seventh day, as they march around, blow the horns, the walls come down. What do you think would have happened if Joshua stopped on day five? I don't know. But Joshua believed and he praised God through the most difficult situations. If you look at this story in, in Joshua chapter six, the first two verses, God says, This is what's going to happen. And it's in past tense. I'm praising God for this event before it happens. Can we praise God through the most difficult situations in life? When things are at their darkest, are we continuing to pray and continuing to praise God, remembering who He is? Give credit to God for the answers to prayer. When they are answers that bring us great joy and when they are answers that bring us Sorrow even. Step number three is to follow his direction. Because like I said, Daniel is praising God, but he hasn't told the king anything. And what we'll learn in verse 24 and following is that Daniel goes to the king and he tells him uh, his, his dream and interprets it. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the, mi- the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The the king asked Daniel, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and vision that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. Just, just notice for a minute the difference in attitudes between Arioch and Daniel when they come to the king. What does Arioch say? He says, king, I found a guy who can interpret your dream. I deserve a raise. Daniel goes to the king and says, no. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. But there is a God in heaven whom we can seek in prayer. There is a God in heaven who we can honor and praise no matter the situation we find ourselves in. Even when my life is threatened, there is a God in heaven who's capable of, of doing this. And then he tells the king his dream, "'As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mystery showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, uh, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance.'" The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of, of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain. And filled the whole earth. This was the dream and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands. He has placed all mankind, the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Daniel said, God has allowed you to become head of a nation that's the world power of its time. You're that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw, that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron. So this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And so he has this dream, and Daniel interprets this dream to be, tell uh, King Nebuchadnezzar about uh, four different kingdoms that would rule the earth, really five, and I think we have this kind of old school, Sunday school graphic, isn't that awesome? So there's the statue, and the, the head of gold is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon, and, and soon Medes and Persian will come into control, and then Greece will sort of rule the world, and, and r- the Roman Empire will have control of, of the known world, and sort of... Uh, You know, the kingdoms kind of decrease in in power and authority, or or at least in in world uh, rule, and until finally we get to the last interpretation, the stone cut out... Not by human hands. In verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king that what will take place in the future, the the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Step three is to follow his direction and Daniel brings that dream to the king with, a, with the right attitude, an attitude that, that reflects that God is absolutely in control and that God is the one who has provided me with this interpretation. Uh, he's seen the, these kingdoms that kind of decrease in, in power until that rock is cut out not by human hands. What are you to make of that, of that statement? Well, that tells us that God ushers in this last kingdom. It's the it's kingdom that he ushers in through his son Jesus, that when Jesus goes to the cross, when he's raised on that third day, that he allows each one of us to be a part of that kingdom, to be a part of his family, to be a part of his team, that outlasts every other kingdom on earth. That as followers of Jesus, it really sh- points to us and shows us where our priorities ought to lie The man we are blessed to live in a great country where we have much freedom to exercise many rights but our focus our priority our starting place ought to be on that kingdom that family that team that outlasts all earthly kingdoms and families and teams that our focus, our priority our our beginning, our starting place is in that relationship with Jesus in the time between uh, when the Old Testament when we have an account of the Old Testament and when the New Testament begins there was this priest who who was serving uh, during a time of of, uh, drought in Judah and his name was Honi, uh, and he's described as a circle maker because at one point in this drought, he uh, goes outside the city, and in the dirt, he draws a circle, and then he kneels in that circle, and he prays to God, God, we desperately need rain. Would you please let it rain? And it begins to drizzle. For a few days, he's, he's kneeling in the circle, and he's praying, and he prays to God at that point, God, I'm not satisfied. We need more rain than this. And the story goes that there was a torrential downpour at that point, that God answered that prayer, and there was there was this torrential downpour of rain. And Honey continues to pray. He said, God, I'm not satisfied with this. We need a we need a calm, lasting rain that will sustain us. And at that point the rain calmed to a to a calm, you know, summer kind of rain, a winter kind of rain in Judah. God answered Honi's prayer. It's interesting that uh, this priest, this, this guy who goes out and prays for rain that the country desperately needed, was nearly excommunicated for that prayer. They said, how dare you talk to God like that? History remembers him a little differently. The historian Josephus, when he introduces this story, he introduces it by saying, now there was one. Now there was one who would pray. When life is at its bleakest, when we believe that the world around us is crumbling, when we are disappointed by the decisions that our leaders make, or we're excited about the decisions our leaders make, it doesn't really matter. We ought to be that one who will pray first, who will include others in our, in our prayers as we talk about, uh, to, with God, the most difficult, the most uh, exciting things going on in our lives. That we will praise God through those difficult situations. That we will believe that even when his prayers are, bring us answers to prayers, bring us sorrow instead of joy, that we will honor him as God, who is sovereign, creator, sustainer, redeemer God. That we would follow through as we seek direction in those prayers, as we ask, what's the next step? What do I do? What do I say to the king? What do, where do I go? that we would believe that he is God and that he is directing us and that we'd follow through. Let's stand and praise the one we ought to be going to.